And what's going on, guys? Kieran Hidley here from the Pocket Coach Podcast. So today's a very special episode around the science of anxiety. We're going to break anxiety down into bits and pieces around what happens in the mind, in the brain, and in the body when anxiety rises, and then how to reverse engineer that. Because by creating a deeper understanding around this anxiety, it gives us that opportunity to break it down so that the reverse engineering becomes possible. So we're going to dive deep into the practical ways in order to do that, in order to diminish anxiety. And we're going to create more clarity around where anxiety is coming from. As science has recently or more so recently discovered how inflammation is a strong biomarker of anxiety and depression. So we look deeply into that. This is a talk that I've done with the number one co-working space in Bali called Dojo Coworking. And Dojo Coworking has people from all around the globe that tuned into this call. It was a Zoom call that I ran for that co-working space. And it's specifically targeted towards decreasing anxiety and elevating the sense of internal freedom. So I invite you to tune in. And if you find yourself benefiting from this information, I would really appreciate it if you took, it literally takes about 30 seconds to leave a review on this podcast. It gives us that opportunity to reach more people so that we can provide more value to those that need it. And if you also feel like you'd love to help us reach more ears and more people that need to hear this information that might struggle with anxiety or simply just need to deep more deeply understand what's going on deep down, then you can absolutely share it as well through social media. And that's hugely appreciated. So without further ado, I'd love to invite you to tune in, uh, grab a notebook if you're not driving and a pen. So let's go. So essentially, when I speak on anxiety, okay, before we get into anything, when I speak on anxiety, we're going to speak on uh, the very logistical aspect of it. So we're going to go a little bit scientific, but we're going to keep it as simple as possible. Uh, just because I know Bali's uh, very big on the whole spiritual scene. So that's why I want to keep it as logical as possible. Uh, so we can uh, keep on that end a little bit more. Now, I'm not dumbing down the spiritual aspect. I'm actually I'm very into it. I, I love my love my little... Get into a bit of spirituality, you know. I enjoy that part, but um, for the sake of this, we're going to be very, uh, very scientific. So, the how to anxiety is something that actually confused me for a very long time, right? Essentially, this whole, uh, the whole business. Oh man, this is very temperamental. Uh, this whole aspect of understanding anxiety itself was <laughs> was very confusing to me because essentially, anxiety was this experience a sensation that i would have and i and i'd come to understand it as okay well there's this chemical imbalance going on right so serotonin which is this feel-good hormone isn't very high and cortisol which is my one of my stress hormones is very high that's that was about my limit to the understanding of what anxiety was for that time being so i came into this uh learning about anxiety seeing uh, serotonin as the good guy cortisol is a bad guy um, and that was about my limit. 
unfortunately uh, that limit of understanding led to a lot of issues uh, including panic attacks uh, including many um, imbalances within my body uh, including various unfortunate experiences that I had to face in order to um, in order to wake me up so that I could actually start to peel away my ego and my pride in terms of what I knew about anxiety and realized I actually knew nothing <laughs> absolutely nothing so what we're going to dive in today is the deeper parts that I started to uncover started to learn about through my coach through different scientists through neurologists through different psychologists through the studies that I've been doing right through the work that I've been doing and then also through my own experience experiments as well and experiences so essentially the focus of this is of course to understand it and then decrease it okay because anxiety is a very broad term it's not just the chemical imbalance right it's not just the uh the dubbed illness right it's the experience itself right so when i feel anxious i might be worried about something i might be confused about something um, i might be fearful about something if i was to define it i might define it like it's that impending doom that something is going to go wrong or is going wrong it's like that sense that there's always something around the corner and i'm not sure what it is that's anxiety if i was to really keep it simple so it doesn't have to be something that you're diagnosed with it can well be something as simple as just i feel anxious but it can also be as well that extreme experience of i'm genuinely experiencing anxiety or i'm experiencing a panic attack right so i want to speak on a little bit of how it's impacted my life first right and then oh, we've got chat feel free all oh, right oh, look at that too many things going on <laughs> so um, that way i can actually explain a little bit about my own experience and then we can actually look a bit deeper into how my experience has shifted so maybe there's gonna be some relatability there maybe there's not okay and that's okay too okay because everyone's got their own experiences so the idea is to tie that experience with the information that i'm bringing forward so intro to good old Kizza. anxiety actually came pretty late for me Right, so a lot of people when they talk about anxiety, it's something that they might have experienced um, quite a bit during the childhood. Uh, essentially, I experienced more depression when I look back. Um, I was very depressed, very not wanting to do anything, um, literally just wanting to curl up into my bed and shy away from the world and watch anime and Lord of the Rings, and that was it. <laughs> that's all I wanted to do. So that's essentially what I did a lot, actually, to be fair. Um, I was very undeserving in my own mind. I created this concept that I did not deserve love. I did not. I could not get a girlfriend. Um, I could barely even speak to a girl, to be fair. Um, yeah, so Monica would not be able to talk to you <laughs> back in the day. Too shy. Uh, but essentially, there was this sense that I was not capable, right, compared to the people around me. I was always feeling like the extra friend, put it that way. And um, this eventually led to starting to experience that anxiety a little bit later. Coming from this place of unworthiness, I started to fear what I was facing because I put myself below the experiences in front of me. By putting myself below these experiences in front of me, all of a sudden I became afraid of those experiences. So anxiety came, right? And I was actually diagnosed with anxiety and depression um, a little bit later. And uh, I started to see a counselor. Now, I know I'm jumping, um, you know, quite a, quite a few scenes here, but essentially the reason why I started to see a counselor is because I was exposed to mental health being experienced within my family. 
So that made me feel a little bit more normal about this intense fear that I was experiencing, this intense anxiety, the darkness that I was experiencing, and I felt just trapped inside of. It's like every morning I'd wake up and I'd just start to walk down the same path. There was no alleyway. There was no doorway out. There was just this one path I had to walk down every single day. And there was the same black hole at the end of this this path. There was the same pitfall that I'd fall down every single day. There was no way out of it. I just knew that as soon as I got up, I knew that was coming. Um, I knew that sense of sadness, that sense of loneliness, especially, uh, and the sense of hopelessness was going to be around the corner. So I'd get up every morning and I'd walk down that path and I'd fall down the hole every single day. Uh, There's no escape. So when I learned that this was actually a little bit more common than just in, within my experience, that's when I started to think that I was actually allowed to get help because I didn't think that there was really anything wrong with me until I actually started to really own it. Um, and when I did, thanks to actually um, my family starting to speak a bit more about it, because um, if that hadn't happened, I don't know what would have happened. Quite honestly, I did have thoughts of taking my own life. And uh, so I went to see a counselor, got help, started to understand it a bit deeper. That's where I got diagnosed. Um, and essentially from there, although I understood what it was now, although it saved my life, it didn't heal it. It didn't change it. It didn't shift my actual experience of the sadness of this anxiety. So I needed to change that. And how I went about that was not good, actually, to be fair. <laughs> Initially, I stepped into a deep sense of ego, thinking that because I started meditating, thinking that this meditation that I just started would cure me, thinking that um, that's all I needed, thinking that um, if I take St. John's Wort, which is a... Um, it's similar to an SSRI, which is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. It's the kind of medication, you know, like Xanax and stuff that you might get given uh, by your doctor. So, um, except it's more natural, right? So it gives off a similar experience within the brain, pumps a bunch of serotonin up in the system, brings down that cortisol. So pumps that feel-good hormone, brings down that stress hormone, right? So, which is good. But what happens is the body always tries to fight for homeostasis. So if I'm constantly um, giving myself medication in order to solve that issue right and medication is meant as a platform it's important it's there for a reason it should be used but not as a solution instead as a platform to heal right and that's why i didn't understand i thought oh yeah well we'll take this saint john's wart and i'll meditate and i'll be good this led me to a lot of panic attacks okay i remember my first to my memory um experience of a panic attack i was just sitting on a couch um i was in my apartment um my girlfriend at the time was cooking dinner and I was just watching anime, I think it was, I don't know, I was watching something like that, probably anime, uh, probably Naruto as well. And I was just sitting there and I just started panicking. I had no idea what it was. Um, I was 19 or 20, must've been 20. And um, I had no idea what it was. I just started hyperventilating. I curled up into the fetal position and my girlfriend at the time came over and asked me what was wrong. Um, and I just kept repeating the same words. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, that's all that could come up. I had no idea. No clue what was it happening. I just couldn't escape this sadness, this overwhelming experience of anxiety. And um, from there on, I experienced a few more panic attacks, quite a few more actually, um, some more memorable than others. And um, I mean, I just remember times in bar, a bar, times in like uh, at a beach, times. Um, in a mall, just walking down the mall with a friend or some panic attack, right? 
So it was definitely a dreadful way to live. Now, I finally hit a point where I was sitting in my lounge at the time in my apartment and I was looking into the corner of my room and I had two thoughts. First thought was even if I don't end up getting married and even if I don't end up making the business that I want to build or having the impact that I want to make, even if nothing of what I want happens, all I want is peace. I'm so sick of feeling this way. I just want peace. That was the first thought. And the second thought I had was I wouldn't even want my worst enemy to feel this way. It was just so painful. So from there, I stripped away my ego. I finally realized I had no idea what I was doing or what I was, <laughs> what I was talking about when it came to anxiety. So I seeked help, but in a different way than before, not in a form of counseling because that didn't honestly didn't really do much for me except for help me understand what it was. Um, so I seeked a psychologist, a holistic psychologist actually, and she dived deep into mindfulness for me. And this quite frankly, completely shifted me out of this experience. So we're going to dive into how and exactly what that was, right? That's really where it started. That was over two years ago now, um, that, um, that experience. And, um, from there, there's been a lot of research into the science behind mindfulness. And as to what it does within the brain, what it does within the body. So, how do we, oh, there we go. Cool. Yeah. I feel like my, my dad using this. Uh, so, <laughs> what we'll cover, okay, is, uh, I'll just keep this nice and brief, but essentially the effects on clarity and productivity. So, the tools that we're going to be diving into, uh, the things that we're going to be diving into are going to have an impact on your clarity and productivity a lot. Okay, in, in a beneficial way, of course. Okay, I'm not going to get rid of your career and productivity. That's not ideal. But since, especially because I'm speaking to uh, dojo peeps, I really wanted to hone in on this. All right, um, it's specifically shown in various studies how uh, you can literally decrease your stress hormone, you can increase overall clarity, you can even grow the prefrontal cortex of your brain, which is your logical thinking mind. Therefore, you're able to create um, a deeper sense of creativity. You're also able to actually last longer without burnout in terms of actually going into a logical thinking space. So there's a lot of benefits that can come from diving deeper into mindfulness, but there's a special way to dive deep into mindfulness. It's not something like you just sit down and just start chanting OM under a tree. Okay, that doesn't, it's not really going to do much for you unless you actually know um, a little bit about why I might sit down and close my eyes. So I'll speak on that a little bit. Now, uh, what causes it and what happens while we're anxious? So when we're experiencing that sense of worry, that stress, that overwhelm, we're going to speak about what happens because by understanding that, I'm going to get a deeper understanding of how to shift it, right? Because the more I understand something, the more I can solve it, right? So the more I understand a maths problem on my page, the easier it's going to be to solve it, right? So essentially, that's why I want to speak a little bit about why it's happening and what's going on. So understanding about the brain and the body uh, and also how to shift that experience within the brain. Like I said, the brain uh, is very, um, well, it's, it's very interchangeable, the brain. It's very, what we call plastic, right? So um, I'll speak on that. It's not actually plastic, but I'll speak on that. It'll make sense soon. Uh, and also practical takeaways, because that's obviously very important. If you guys don't go away with anything practical, you guys are going to um, not like Kieran, okay? You're not going to like Kieran, this guy right here. You're not going to like them. Uh, so I'll make sure you get, you guys get something practical to take away on this. Okay. So 
what causes anxiety? It's a big question, right? So essentially, when I thought it was like this, okay, well, if my stress hormone's really high, I get anxious, right? And I mean, to a degree, that's true, sure. But science has started to see that the literal biomarker they will start to use to see mental health issues, including anxiety, including bipolar disorder, including schizophrenia, including depression, including literally any um, uh, mental health issue, they start to um, have started to see that a biomarker of inflammation is very relevant here. What this means is that when my inflammation in my body is high, I'm very susceptible to experiencing anxiousness, stress, overwhelm, right? That sense of not, not being good enough, that sense of not being worthy, right? So all these experiences can come very easily from that place of high inflammation. Now, what they notice is when they're able to lower that inflammation, they're actually as well equally able to lower those experiences of anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, whatnot, right? So inflammation is a big factor here. So inflammation doesn't just come from my feelings of stress. It comes from food. It comes from exercise. It comes from stimulation to my physical body, right? So what I mean by that is if I am always exercising, okay, it's probably not going to be good for my body if I'm not taking rest. If I'm under-exercising, right, so I'm, I'm not really doing anything, not getting around. I know when I was in Bali, I, um, I got too good at just sitting on the scooter and going everywhere and not walking anywhere. Um, but, um, essentially, uh, under-exercising can also be detrimental, right, because it's going to lead to stress on the body when I do want to go and go about my movement because the body's not um, used to stepping into that. So food-wise, I won't touch on this um, too long because I want to get into the other stuff, but food can be a very big effect and so what i started to notice is that when i decreased inflammatory foods right not only did like my bloating go down so um you know i wasn't um uh i wasn't always feeling inflamed i always felt bloated uh, and that was really it was a bit of an issue i used to be in the fitness industry it didn't really help me there when i started to cut down on inflammatory foods i actually started to notice my experiences of anxiousness started to come down with it because I was less inflamed. So uh, inflammatory foods can include things like red meat, okay? Sugar, unfortunately, okay? I still eat my chocolate, don't worry, I eat a lot of chocolate, so that's not that one I'm still working on. Dark chocolate though, so it's okay guys, it's healthy. Um, <laughs> no, that's um, good, but not too much, not like me. Uh, gluten was a big one. Right, so I had to reduce gluten. In fact, I've pretty much cut it out almost completely. All right, this is an ideal. Um, don't worry, you don't need to. Um, I just went, I, when I go in for something, I go all in. Um, but you don't really need to cut it completely. A little bit of gluten is absolutely fine. Um, but a little bit too much, I don't want to get into the deep science of it. It can be very inflammatory. Um, dairy is another thing. So lactose products can be very inflammatory. One of the more inflammatory products you can have is dairy. Uh, so being sure that you uh, don't consume too much dairy either. So go for that that vegan gelato guys in Bali. Uh, that was definitely my favorite. Um, so nutrition is a big factor, right? It's also it also comes down to how my uh, nervous system is. Okay, so my nervous system can be broken down into two aspects, right? I've got my sympathetic nervous system, which is uh, my fight or flight system. Okay. Uh, and then I've got my parasympathetic system, which is my rest and digest. So that system that starts to activate when you sigh, like, ah, 
that scent, that feeling of relief that you might get. That's the parasympathetic system activating. Your sympathetic nervous system activating, that's like the tightness that you get in the gut, right? The clench in the, in the throat, right? The dizziness in the head, even the headache that you, that you might have. That's the sympathetic nervous system. So when you're really focused on your work, right, and really tense, you're very sympathetically active, right? So when you're sympathetically active for too long, what happens is the stress in the system builds up. We decrease the amount of deep breaths that we create. So therefore, we decrease the amount of oxygen in our body. So a lack in oxygen and an increase in overall stress to the system is overall going to lead to this experience of anxiety. Okay, So sympathetic system, right? that fight or flight, that increased amount of stress hormone, and the lack of oxygen. This is what leads to anxiety, guys. Okay. Now, I, I, I don't know if you guys can really see my entire screen because um, I, I know there's a video. I don't know. Anyway, I'm just going to continue. Um, so <laughs> uh, how anxiety happens, okay? So essentially, we've got a deeper understanding of what's going on. Uh, but essentially, if I was to really dumb it down as simply as possible why this is happening, Essentially, my own intelligence is working against me. That's it. Just to really dumb it down. Right? My own intelligence is working against me. Because I might produce a stressful thought. My stress system activates because of the stressful thought. And it gets to a point where I might end up experiencing a breakdown, aka a panic attack, right? So the system gets so stressed that it can't handle it, so it starts to break down, right? It starts to try find homeostasis. Uh, which means that it needs to start to slow things down or shut things down. Okay, it doesn't really shut things down fully, but essentially it starts to slow things down, leading to that sense of panic, that sense of a panic attack, right? Um, which I experience a lot. So when my mind is working against me, it's a bit of a problem, right? Because if you look at any animal that does not have the mind or consciousness of a human being, right? All it needs, right? I'm sure you've, you know, you've seen a dog. There's a lot of dogs in Bali, right? You, uh, you give a dog a little bit of food, and they're the happiest thing you've ever seen, <laughs> right? Why is that? Because their only problem is survival. Once survival is solved, they're as blissful as they can be. Once survival is solved, they're as blissful as they can be. Except, we've been given this uh, cerebral capability within our brain meaning that we can be conscious, right? More, more deeply conscious at least, which means that we start to see that, okay, well, when the stomach is empty, there's one problem, right? I'm hungry. I want freaking food, right? I want my chocolate, right? But when stomach is full, 100 problems. Have you noticed this, right? When you're very hungry one day, all you think about is food. The moment you've eaten, all of a sudden, all your problems come back to you. Why? Because the moment that survival is met for a human being, that's when life actually starts happening. It's like, oh crap, now I've got all my problems. When I'm hungry, I've just got one problem, food. Right? So essentially survival is, of course, the main aspect of the brain. It's always seeking ways to survive. Uh, and then the moment that uh, basic survival is met, it thinks that all these other aspects in my mind can lead to disaster because they found that literally a single thought can lead to the same experience as if it was happening in reality. So what they found is that the same experience within my body in terms of the stress hormone activating, in terms of the, um, the actual um, happenings in the brain, they've done this under brain scans, 
they noticed that it was a very similar experience when someone thought a stressful thought as when they experienced uh, something very scary in front of them. Someone was holding a knife, they experienced a scary animal, right? They experienced a spider, whatever it was. When they actually physically experienced something, the same experience happened when they just thought about it. Exactly the same. The brain does not know the difference between reality and a thought. So this became very interesting when I started to dive into this, right? They even, um, if you look, you can literally look this up on YouTube as well. They've done the fake, uh, I think it's called the fake hand hammer experience or something like that. But what they did is they got, um, this magician will like sit people down at his desk and uh, they'll get a participant to basically hide their arm behind this wall. They can't see the they can't see their arm but it's underneath this box essentially there's also a fake hand right next to the real hand right and now what happens is as a fake hand is sitting there right the um the real hand sitting right um real hands sitting right next to them right and then, and then what the magician does is the magician so the participant can only see the fake hand they can't see the real hand the, the magician starts to stroke the fingers of the uh, of the participant right so they might stroke the index finger of the participant and as they do they also stroke the index finger of the fake hand so the participant is seeing the index finger of the fake hand getting stroked while the real hand behind the wall is actually getting stroked on the index finger too so then they go along to the middle finger right the other fingers and so forth and what this does is because the person is seeing their fake this fake hand getting stroked while they're feeling the actual experience in their real hand, their brain starts to perceive this fake hand is real. This brain starts to perceive that this fake hand is actually their own hand, even though it's obviously not, right? Simply because their brain is seeing the experience, because apparently seeing is believing within a human being, right? So the moment that um, the guy gets out a hammer and smashes the fake hand, the same experience of pain, of stress, of fear, happens within the participant they genuinely experience the same thing as if it was their real hand really interesting right so even though it's their fake hand just because they saw the fake hand not their real hand right they started to um they started to have the same experience of pain simply because the brain will always um if the if we're very associated deeply associated with what we see in terms of being real okay the brain will always correlate that um, as the biggest thing in the world, right? So the moment I have this tiny little neuron firing in my brain that says, oh no, help me, okay? Or you're not good enough, I believe it. So it's learning how to not believe that, learning how to create actual clarity and come to a deeper understanding of what actually is real and what is just simply a made up thought based on recycled data that I've gathered, gathered of my life, okay? So essentially, uh, we want to speak a little bit about the brain as to what's going on in the brain when we start to experience anxiety and there's three main areas where we'll start to see this okay and that's the hippocampus the um, amygdala and the prefrontal cortex I'll explain what these are in a second so don't don't, don't freak out right now okay don't worry. it's very simple um, but, but essentially these are the three main areas that you're going to start to see become very active during experience of anxiety okay so just to really dumb it down, okay, the hippocampus is where we store a lot of memory, okay? We store our long-term memory in the hippocampus, okay? So for example, if I was told to sit down and shut up as a kid, okay, very basic, I might record that, okay? If I experienced a very traumatic event growing up, I'll record that. 
If I experience rejection, I'll record that. If I experience a business failure, I will record that, okay? All this stuff gets stored in the hippocampus. Various other areas in the brain, but hippocampus is the main one related to this experience that we're going to talk about. Uh, so this is a big area for the long-term memory. So what happens now is because as you can see that red section on the brain, which is the amygdala, it reacts to stress and emotional arousal. Essentially fear, it's the biggest section for fear that we experience. So when, when I'm experiencing fear, this region in the brain is the most active, okay? Now, because past memory is so closely tied to fear, like it physically is right next door to where we experience fear, what's gonna happen is when I have a triggered memory of being rejected, I have a triggered memory of failing in a business, I have a triggered memory of, um, of failing in a specific experience or not being good enough for a certain person, right? whatever it is, right, and I get reminded of this, my amygdala becomes very active. That sense of fear builds up, and this speaks to my prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is the control center of the brain. So whenever you have like a bright idea and you logically think about something, that's your prefrontal cortex working. So when you look at the work that's in front of you and you're using your intellect, that's your prefrontal cortex um, working. When you're trying to solve a maths problem, when you're trying to think about something, that's your prefrontal cortex working. When you're trying to decide what to do with your day, that's your prefrontal cortex working, right? So your prefrontal cortex is the control center. It's deciding what you're going to do. So normally what happens is, especially in Western societies where everything's go, 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 busy, 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 we get taught uh, to associate so strongly with our thoughts because we spend our entire time not actually coming to a deeper understanding of emotions, of um, of what is actually happening within us. We're so focused on um, on it, certain types of education that revolve around mathematics, um, you know, um, different languages, science, that sort of stuff, which is all well and good, but we never really understand what's within us. We never really understand these experiences that are going on. So because the prefrontal cortex becomes so associated uh, with, um, with thought being so, so important, okay, what happens is the amygdala starts to form a very strong relationship with this prefrontal cortex. So now when I experience fear, right, the fear, the amygdala speaks to the prefrontal cortex and it says, holy crap, there's a big problem. Okay, that's what that says. So the prefrontal cortex says, holy crap, I believe you. All right. And that's what's happening. That's when we start to experience a whole lot of anxiety in terms of, oh no, warning bells, everything's going wrong. When really, I might be completely fine. I could be sitting here right here in this room, right? And I might not get a message back from the person I'm seeing. I might not uh, get a response from a certain client, right? I might all of a sudden see a stock market issue, right? And I might react to that. So I'm actually physically okay. No one's actually standing here with a knife next to me. No one's actually holding a gun to my head. Yet I'm still experiencing that same feeling as if they were. Why? because I believe that fear to be true, that, oh no, something's happening in the stock market, therefore, right, I'm going to lose all my money. Oh no, this person hasn't responded to me via message, therefore, they don't like me, right? Oh no, um, uh, something happened at work, therefore, I'm probably gonna be fired, right? So the prefrontal cortex comes through all these assumptions simply because the amygdala is in fear. That becomes an issue. So how to reverse this? Because ultimately, 
if the amygdala, so that fear response, right, that scary, oh no, holy crap, warning bells, is going on, and the prefrontal cortex decides to make assumptions, that leads to anxiety. Speaking on what I told, talked on before, right, so when I see something and I believe it, right, like the fake hand experience, okay, essentially that means that every time I think that I'm not good enough, every th- time I think that I can't do, uh, I can't do uh, the business, or I can't do this job, or um, I definitely can't go and speak to that person, or I can't do this presentation, right? Essentially, when that starts to happen, my prefrontal cortex um, essentially believes it, right? Because it's taking past data that I've stored in the past. Maybe I've had a breakup, okay, and it was a bad breakup, um, and it was, um, and it happened a lot because, uh, sorry, it was. It started to build up because we started to distance from each other and we didn't speak to each other very much um, and she didn't respond to me very much so I started creating this association with because she didn't respond very much this led to the breakup so that gets stored in the hippocampus now when I might get into a new relationship and all of a sudden this person might be you know busy with life and everything um, and then they don't respond to me I might create this assumption that because this person is not responding to me, therefore, we are probably gonna break up, right? So that's just an example of what can start to happen. So how to solve that? Okay, I'm gonna speak on that in a second, but before we do that, I wanna tell a little joke because, you know, we get very serious when speaking about anxiety. Um, gotta lighten things up a little bit. Um, but essentially, kids are the Kiwi, okay? Here in um, New Zealand, we drive on the left side of the road, right? Um, but kids of the Kiwi, um, he went over to California, right? And uh, he went over to visit some family and uh, kids of the Kiwi um, has his stepdad over there. And his stepdad has a Mustang, you know, he's, he's pretty keen on Mustang. So he asked his stepdad if he could take his Mustang for a spin. He's like, you know, it's sweet. Like, you know, I drive sweet in New Zealand. It can't be any more difficult here in California. I should be sweet. Uh, let's go for a spin. So I jumped on in, uh, good old kids of the Kiwi, went for a ride in his stepdad's Mustang. Now, he's driving down State Highway 1, and uh, he gets a call. He picks up the phone, and he's like, oh, stepdad, what's up? And stepdad is going on all about, uh, there's this madman driving on the wrong side of the road, and he's wondering what's going on. Um, and he's like, just be careful, okay, kids of the Kiwi, just be careful, all right? Um, you know, it's, it's pretty chaotic here in California. If, if there's a madman on the road, you better watch out. And uh, kids of the Kiwi is all confused. He's like, what do you mean? There's like hundreds of madmen on the road. They're all driving on the wrong side of the road. <laughs> so uh, the driest joke you've probably ever heard, but um, essentially it speaks to this exact thing, right? When I create an assumption in my mind that I am right, this is the way it is, okay? And my prefrontal cortex believes me. That's where all chaos will break loose. Because the moment I believe that thought of I'm not good enough, the moment that I believe that thought that I can't do this, is a moment that anxiety will start to play a big part in my life. Because I'll assume that X is not possible or Y can't be done, even though um, if I don't do this, my life depends on this job, my life depends on this relationship, right? My life depends on this friendship, my life depends on this result, right? And because I can't do X, okay, um, I experience anxiety, okay? So this is how things can change. The brain is plastic, okay? So 
when the brain is um when i say the brain is plastic obviously it's not you know it's not actually like plastic you can't like knock on it or anything like that it, it doesn't really work that way it's a bit soft um but plastic that means it's changeable that means it can shift that means it can transform that's what it means so when they say neuroplasticity what they mean is it can change it can evolve it can shift so the brain can shrink and it can grow over time. It doesn't necessarily just grow and grow and grow and then stay the same for, um, after we reach a certain age. It actually grows and shrinks, grows and shrinks over our life based off the amount of stress and inflammation that we experience. Based on the amount of peacefulness and restfulness we experience, it can actually grow. Okay, And based on the amount of consciousness we step, in, step into in terms of conscious thought, conscious decision, we can actually grow this prefrontal part of our brain. And when that grows, it means that we can start to actually step deeper into more empowered thinking. Okay, I'm going to get to that in a second. But essentially, various studies have shown that meditators, okay, have shown to have a weaker connection between right, the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. So remember when I said that when... Uh, uh, when we're very identified with our thought process, right? The amygdala creates this, like, you know, this fear um, section of our brain creates this really strong response with our logical thinking mind. And when that happens, right, that means every single fear I experience is real, okay? Even though it's just cr um, created um, from the data that's in my mind, and that's it, right? But when, we, when meditators right, start to actually um, deepen their practice and they start to um, get into their meditation experience in a much deeper way, right, in a practical way, not just in a way where I just follow my breath, but in a way where I actually deepen my experience and I'm able to sit there, when my mind starts to say, Kieran, go check your phone. Kieran, uh, go do the dishes, right? Kieran, go eat breakfast. Right? Kieran, do this. Kieran, do that, right? When my brain starts to do that, right? Scratch your nose, right? Um, scratch your head, right? Um, bite your lip, whatever. When my brain starts to say that, and I sit there anyway, what's happening is that uh, connection between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex starts to break, okay? So over time, the more I start to do this, the more I can actually learn to sit there instead of re reacting to my impulses that I'm experiencing, and I can just sit there in silence anyway. If I can just do that for five minutes in the morning and five minutes in the evening, uh, and, and uh, if you guys know of uh, a man called Dr. Joe Dispenza, okay, he speaks really strongly on literally just stillness, practicing stillness first thing in the morning and last thing in the evening. What you'll start to experience is you'll start to experience less impulses within the body and less reactions in the body and much more calmness. And that's the reason why is because that connection between that fear-based part in the brain and the logical thinking mind in the brain starts to disconnect. And when that starts to disconnect, right, all of a sudden, when a fear happens in the body, my logical mind can be like, "Oh, that's just a made up. That's just made up experience. This does this actually has no relation to the experience that I'm about to step into, right? That presentation that I screwed up last time has actually zero relation to this presentation. But if I'm strongly associated with my amygdala, with that fear-based part in the brain, it will, it will absolutely have a big part to play, which means that." I might stuff up more, I'm more likely to stuff up because I'm strongly associated with a past experience. But through meditation, okay, not only do I create that space between um, the that amygdala, that fear-based part of my brain and my logical thinking mind, but I also grow my prefrontal cortex, which means that I get a 
stronger piece of meat up here, okay? Uh, I get a very a much more empowered logical thinking mind, which means that I can start to observe things more consciously and less reactively, okay? So there's good or so there's a few good things about that. Um, and I kind of just spoke on the slide already, didn't I? So I'm going to skip to the next one. So essentially what's happening is when we're not meditating, right? So when I'm not closing my eyes and I'm looking inward, and that's, I'm just keeping meditation simple. That's all it is. Close my eyes, look inward. Okay. What am I thinking? What am I feeling? Meditation. It's that simple, right? It's not some, um, Buddhist thing. It wasn't invented, um, you know, by Buddha or anything. It's been around for thousands of years. It's something that it's not religion based. Um, it's something that you'll see across the board. Prayer is even a form of meditation. Okay. Just keeping it simple. So essentially, outward looking, okay, when I'm focused outwardly, I'm not focused on what's going on in my brain, okay? Because essentially, what they found is that when I'm consciously focused on something, I can only consciously focus on something um, expansively um, as a singular thing. So what I mean by that is, if I'm really focused on this drink bottle, my subconscious is more active with the talking because my consciousness is more focused on the drink bottle. However, if I'm focused on the drink bottle, my subconscious is focused on the drink bottle, right? So essentially when I'm consciously focused outwardly, I can't be consciously focused inwardly. That's why we take time to sit down and close our eyes and look inwardly because what that does is it gives us an opportunity to look at the thoughts, look at the emotions, meaning okay, this is the, the thought that I'm thinking, or this is the impulse I'm having, or this is a feeling that I get when I think this thought, right? So I learned to understand what's going on deeper down inside of me. And in doing so, right, when I'm starting to look inwardly, like good old Jeff over here, okay, as you can see on the screen, uh, like good old Jeff, he's starting to look inwardly by closing his eyes. By closing his eyes, he can take out the outward senses and start to experience what's within. That's literally meditation, guys. It's that simple. Um, so I'd love to try this together very briefly. I'm just going to go over a very basic meditation process. It's going to be very different from good old headspace, if you've ever done it. Um, but it's going to be a very simple process. And literally, if you give yourself an opportunity to do a five-minute version of this, we'll just do three minutes together, okay? But a five-minute version of this first thing in the morning and a five-minute version of this last thing before you go to sleep, you will notice a big shift in your experience of fear. You will notice a big shift in your impulses. You will notice a big shift in your ability to think logically without distraction. And also you're going to notice a big decrease in that anxious experience, okay? Because you've control, you've taken deeper control of your mind rather than your mind taking deeper control of you, okay? So all I want you to do, very simply, I just want you to close your eyes. Okay. If you're listening to this while you're driving, please don't do that. Um, but just close your eyes. And what I want you to do is I want you to deeply inhale through your nose and then deeply exhale through the mouth. And I want you to repeat that just two more times. just return to rest and I just want you to breathe in and out through your nose now and I want you to 
just pay attention to the mind. The mind was probably going to race. It's probably going to say, open your eyes. It's probably not even going to get you to close your eyes. That's a very common one. But essentially, the mind can be very noisy. Or it can take the next step and actually be seemingly very quiet when I actually look at it. Why? Because it's a defense mechanism. So just tune into that. Is the mind blanking? Or is the mind very busy? Is the mind focused on me? Or is it focused on a million other things? The million other things aspect is very common too. So don't be worried if that's the case. All I want you to do is just focus on the mind for a moment. And I want you to let it be. If you're focused on a million things, allow yourself to focus on a million things. If you're struggling to understand my accent, then that's also an aspect that you focus on, that's okay. If you're thinking about nothing, then that's okay too. The concept of this, the idea of this, is just simply letting it be, not judging and letting it to accept it. Now I want you to deepen your breath into the lower belly. Get as low as you can. You've got a lot of nerve endings that run deep into the stomach. And by breathing deeply into this region of the belly, you can actually allow the system to start to relax more. Now I want you to just focus on the region around your stomach. If you really focus there, you might start to notice emotions. You might start to notice tension, tightness. That's all very normal. Or you might not be able to focus on anything because your mind's going a million miles an hour. That's also okay. It's practice. Trust me, when I did this, I couldn't sit still for 30 seconds. I get it. It's practice. Now I sit still for an hour. Just focusing on that. You can train yourself to do it. If you notice any emotions, if you notice how you feel, see if you can let that be. See if you can fully accept that, just as it is. Deepen your breath. And I'm going to tell you a very dry joke. What did the Buddhist monk say when he didn't know the answer to a question? Um, I told you it was dry. <laughs> but essentially, all this meditation is, is looking inwardly, noticing your thoughts, noticing your emotions, and being light. That's it. It's that simple. You can open your eyes. It's literally that simple. You don't need to do anything um, drastically special. You don't have to you know, do anything specifically guided. Right? Silence is actually the best way to do this. Because being able to sit in silence by decreasing the amount of stimulus I have around me right, in terms of um, voiceovers, in terms of music, in terms of 
um, things I'm looking at. If I start to take away those senses, that's why float tanks can be very powerful. A lot of the top sports athletes in the world actually use them um, because it allows us to cut off, cut off our senses, look inwardly as inwardly as possible, and start to become more conscious of what's going on. Right? So um, if you can learn to really sit in silence for just literally five more minutes in the morning, five more minutes in the evening, and just focus on what's in my mind, how am I feeling, and just fully accepting it as it is. You'll start to notice a deeper sense of self-compassion for one, but a deeper sense of consciousness, an ability to respond to situations rather than react to them, to respond to what's in the mind rather than then react to it, right, as if it's some scary thing. You start to be able to see things more clearly, and ultimately you become more productive as well, because you'll be less in a reactive space. So. I'm going to start to give you some other tools because I want to give as many takeaways as possible so you guys can go away and you know, be very practical about, um, about any senses of stress and anxiety that you might experience. So the power of breath, okay. Breath is a very extremely powerful thing when it comes to anxiousness. Okay, I'm going to teach two different breaths. There's many, there's literally hundreds of breaths that you can do. I'm just going to teach two, okay. One of them um, has been around for literally thousands of years, okay, and it's just a simple exhale method, okay. And the other one was actually developed about three months ago by a neuroscientist. Um, his name is Dr. Huberman, okay, from memory. Dr. Andrew Huberman, okay. He literally developed this three months ago, and he dubbed it the, more, the most powerful um, breath to get us into our parasympathetic, which is our rest and digest system. Well, I mean, that's from his experience, right? So he obviously compared it to a few other breathing techniques. Doesn't mean it's the best, but Essentially, it's powerful. So the first breath, right, the one that's been around for a while, it's a nasal breath. So you're just going to breathe in your nose for three seconds. You're going to hold it for four seconds, and then you're going to exhale through the nose for six. What this does is by nasal breathing, we stimulate the parasympathetic, the nervous system, right, in a good way. By exhaling longer than we inhale, we also stimulate this rest and digest system because what happens is, uh, in the brain, the brain starts to think, oh, that's it. that's the relief experience that I'm meant to be having. Therefore, it starts to trigger this sense of relief. So when you suddenly have that amazing sense of relief because uh, maybe a big weight's been lifted off your shoulders, maybe um, you were worried about getting a bad grade or someone was going to break up with you and it didn't happen, right? That sense of relief, right? That same experience can be actually created through the breath by doing this technique. So all it is is breathing in for four seconds through the nose. Hold. And exhale. That's it. Okay, so breathing in for four, holding for five, and exhaling for six. I did say breathing for three. I actually meant to say four. Um, it's pretty late here. I'm tired. <laughs> but essentially, breathe in for four, hold for five, exhale for six. It's that simple, guys. Okay, if you do that a minimum of eight times, it's shown uh, that um, done some studies on this on this type of breath. Um, it's shown that you actually start to stimulate that parasympathetic, that rest and digest system, quite a lot. Okay, and that's when it really starts to shift into that parasympathetic, into that rest and digest system. The second breath, and I actually I've started using this a lot recently, and I actually like it more to access quickly. So when I'm in a rush, okay, because I've got a lot going on all at once um, and I don't have time to take out, you know, even a minute, right, because there might be a lot of things in front of me. But essentially, uh, 
it's a very powerful breath to get me into that state quickly. But that first breath, that four, five, six breath, gets me into a deeper state. Okay, so that breath is four. If, I'm, if I've got a few minutes to take out, I really want to focus on that breath, spend a couple of minutes on it. But this is a breath that you can just use when you're going about your day. And it's a two in, one out breath. Okay, this is the one that was developed by Dr. Andrew Huberman. And all it is is you breathe in twice through your nose and you exhale once through your mouth. So it's the same level of timing. So when I breathe in twice through the nose, say that takes me four seconds, I also exhale through the mouth for four seconds. So it's just going to be like this. I breathe into my lower belly twice. That's literally it. I'll repeat one more time. Twice through the nose, once through the mouth. And that's it. And if you practice that literally only three rounds of that, you'll start to notice a very quick shift. So maybe you're working at dojo. Maybe you're um you know you're you're hard at work during um during a meeting okay maybe you're even doing a presentation and you've taken a time to meditate um, to meditate with people like i just did which literally will never happen but <laughs> you never know right and practicing that breath okay you can li i literally will use it in the middle of a conversation I'm not even kidding you like i'll be on a client call and i'll be utilizing it it's a very powerful form to get me back into a more responsive state and a less reactive state without needing to take away with, from what i'm doing and it can very effectively shift me from that experience of, oh no, what's going on, to, oh, I'm okay. It's very practical, very powerful. Now, breath can be very, um, very effective in terms of how it can actually shift my thought patterns, right? I'm just going to check time quickly because I believe, yeah, so I'll, I won't go for any longer than another 10 minutes. Um, but essentially, the breath can change thought patterns very effectively. Why? Because when I'm a in a reactive state, okay, what's happening is I'm recycling old thought. I'm not able to step into new thought. When this is happening, I can no longer actually step out of my current pattern. So if my current pattern is, oh no, I'm not good enough. Oh no, I can't do this. And I'm reacting to it because I'm in that sympathetic state, that fight or flight state. I can't get out of it but if I'm able to calm myself down through my breath and I enter that parasympathetic state that rest and digest state all of a sudden my brain stops being so sporadic and I can choose a new path so it's literally the simple simple next time I feel reactive okay next time you feel reactive next time you feel fearful next time you feel anxious worried stressed whatever it is next time you experience that Give yourself an opportunity to practice one of those two breaths and you'll find that you'll be more capable of choosing a new path. More capable. It doesn't mean you automatically will. It takes, obviously, um, decisiveness, uh, discernment, and action. However, you're more likely to. Right? It might be something as simple as just simply taking that breath. That's actually a new action as well. Because by taking that breath, you're choosing calmness over reaction. You're choosing responsiveness over um of over being stuck in that same pattern by doing so you're creating new patterns in the brain that says when this happens i'm actually capable of finding a sense of safety within that will give you a deeper sense of self-trust and a deeper sense of self-stability okay which means that you'll be less likely to be fearful of whatever situation that was in the future okay so it's very powerful for changing thought patterns just by simply using the breath so power of celebration and 
dopamine, right? Uh, so this has been studied a lot, right? Um, and you can use celebration in a very simple way uh, to actually decrease the amount of anxiety you feel and increase the amount of productivity you experience. So if I'm going about my work day and, you know, I might get to the end of the day and I uh, and I get to the end of the day and I'm automatically and already thinking about tomorrow, okay, that's not celebration, right? That's just simply getting on with my own day, getting on with my own stuff. And then all of a sudden I might get to the weekend, I feel burnt out, I feel tired, I feel unmotivated. Why is this happening? Here's a simple reason. Because the dopamine circuit isn't active when I'm working. So when my dopamine circuit isn't active with something, it, what happens is that same circuitry creates a punishment system. Okay, So when dopamine would normally fire where it should fire, if it's not firing, I'm creating a negative experience with what's in front of me. So for example, if I'm not celebrating my accomplishments with work, if I'm not celebrating um, uh, my conscious awareness that I'm creating, if I'm not celebrating the fact that I created new decisions um, where I would normally experience reactiveness, if I'm not celebrating the fact that I chose to breathe deeply when I'd normally experience anxiousness, the brain won't do that in the future. Why? Because it's creating a negative connotation with that. So you can easily shift that by creating some natural high, creating a natural dopamine hit. Okay, this is practice over time, just like anything else. It doesn't mean that you're going to automatically be, you know, on top of the world after a couple of days. But it does mean that over time, that's why people practice gratitude, right? Because gratitude fires at dopamine circuitry. When that dopamine circuitry fires, right, we're creating a, a better, um, co um, a better experience of life because now my brain says, "Oh, life is good. Cool, I'm firing dopamine." Okay, <laughs> that's essentially what's happening. But um, if I could create this dopamine circuitry to fire um, more proficiently throughout the day, not just when I practice gratitude, that's actually going to come by celebrating my day. And that's something as simple as when I uh, might finish a, finish a difficult paragraph on my blog. It might be as simple as I had a very I had a moderately difficult conversation with someone. It might be something as simple as I drank more water today, okay? It might be something as simple as I ate one piece less of chocolate, which is definitely a big accomplishment for me, okay? It can be very simple, but if you learn to celebrate these simple moments, your brain will literally fire this dopamine circuitry more, which means that you'll create a more positive connotation with doing helpful things for yourself. When you do that, all of a sudden your brain starts to go to work to actually start to organically, subconsciously do this more often. Okay, so celebration is a very powerful factor. It's a very simple tool, but very underrated and very underutilized. So I encourage you in the next 24 hours, practice this. And you'll notice that if you continue this, literally within two weeks, I'm telling you within two weeks, you will notice a substantial difference with your productivity Okay, because you've been celebrating your work more, you'll notice a considerable difference in your relationship because you've been celebrating uh, different experiences within your relationship more. You'll notice a massive improvement with your overall well-being and your association with life because you've been celebrating it more. So celebrating is a very powerful factor. And yes, this might feel forced very at the very start. It felt very forced for me. But over time, that dopamine starts to associate itself um, as, this, um, as an emotional response as well. Um, but that takes practice, right? Now, last but not least, this is the end, guys, okay? But don't bullshit yourself. 
So I'm gonna tell another really dry joke. Okay, I love my dry jokes. Uh, this is, these are these are freaking kids of jokes, right? So a bull and a pheasant, okay, as in like a cow bull, right, were grazing in a paddock, and the bull was you know eating away at the grass, and the pheasant was, excuse me, picking away at ticks on the bull. So it was a win-win relationship. You know, they had a great relationship, and the pheasant, you know, saw a tree right next to it and um, and looked up at the top of the tree. And the pheasant said to the bull, alas, there was a time when I could actually reach that top branch, but now I've eaten too many of your ticks. I'm too fat, I'm too heavy, and I don't have the energy to get up there. So the bull said, well, you know, if you actually eat a little bit of my dung every single day, I bet within two weeks you'll get to the top branch. The, the pheasant said, what do you mean? I'm not going to eat your crap. <laughs> I'm not... I mean, that, that's that's silly. I'm not going to do that. The bull says, mm, I mean, it definitely works. The whole humanity is on it. <laughs> you know? So uh, the pheasant says, oh, okay. All right, well, give it a try at least. So, you know, on day one, the pheasant starts pecking away at the bull's crap. And um, after a little bit, um, within the first 24 hours, the pheasant reaches the first branch. And the pheasant was so surprised, I might actually be able to make the top of the tree. So the pheasant continues this process, eating the, the bull's dung every single day. And within two weeks, the pheasant is at the top of the tree. The pheasant could, couldn't believe it. The pheasant was so happy just walking at the top of the tree, so stoked. And just a little while away, uh, a farmer who was on his rocking chair sees a very fat pheasant at the top of this tree in his farm. So he gets out his shotgun, points it at the pheasant, shoots it and kills it, and the pheasant dies. The moral of the story is bullshit may get you to the top, but it won't keep you there. Okay. So, don't bullshit yourself. Be real with yourself. If you're really stressed, be real about it. If you're really sad, be real about it. If you're not feeling good, be real about it. This is so vital because if I'm not being real about my experience, if I'm bullshitting myself that I'm not really feeling down, if I'm bullshitting myself that... I'm not really feeling anxious. I'm like, nah, I'm okay. Really, I'm hurting myself. Okay. Because this is the thing about positive thinking. Positive thinking is about focusing on one side of life. But the other side of life will not ignore me. Okay. So the subconscious is always true to what's there. My mind is always true to what's happening. If there's negativity occurring and I ignore it, that's like a fire happening in my kitchen and saying, oh, I don't deal with negativity. I'm not going to think about you. Okay. It's going to burn away in the mind until something snaps. I might wake up in the morning and all of a sudden the whole world's burning down. Right. I might all of a sudden get to a point in my relationship or in my business and I might break down and be like, I can't do it. Why? Because I haven't dealt with the problem at hand. Okay. So deal with the fire in the kitchen. Be real about it and don't bullshit yourself. Okay. That's it. So takeaways. Meditation practice, very simple process, okay? Five minutes in the morning, five minutes in the evening. You can lengthen this if you wish. Um, I Like for me, it's about an hour in the morning normally, about 20 to 30 minutes in the evening. That's just me personally, okay? That's something that I've developed over years. It's not something that I, trust me, like I said, 30 seconds, could not sit still. Uh, so it took a while to do that. Uh, breath, use those two factors of breath. Okay, there's a second one. Third one is celebration. If you do that more often, you're going to notice a more profound experience of life. 
And a last little key one I'll give you is disciplinary uh, physiological shifts. Okay, so in Harvard University 2007, they saw a study where, and they did a study where someone stood up here for two minutes in the Superman, Superwoman pose. Okay, within two minutes, their testosterone goes up 40%, their stress hormones drop about a third, and ultimately they feel very differently just within two minutes. So, you know, if you're feeling really down, just stand up like Superman. <laughs> Imagine doing that in the middle of your co-working space. That would be a bit weird. So you don't need that. But change your physiology. Change your physiology. You just need to change your... Larry, if you're in a crouched position like this, okay, your hormones start to flow in a very stressed way. If you're sitting like this, your hormones start to flow in a more proactive way. So changing your physiology can actually change your chemistry within your body, which means you change your experience. So... Change your physiology the moment something starts to be stressful. Use your breath to lower the amount of stress. And then consciously remind yourself that, oh, this is a thought. I am okay. You won't instantly magically feel great. But if you practice this over time, I guarantee that this will be one of the most powerful techniques you use. Anyway, that's it, guys. I just want to say, see you later. Um, you can find me on good old IG, okay, Coach Keza. Um, also, I've got the Pocket Coach podcast, which is interviews with people around mental health. Um, I am an anxiety coach. I work with groups. Uh, if you're interested, you can let me know. But otherwise, much love, guys. Thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. If you find that this information was helpful, if you found you benefited from this podcast, please take 30 seconds to leave a review. Doing so actually allows us to reach more people. And... These people may very much benefit from this information. So it would honestly do, do us a massive favor and a favor for those that do need to hear it as well. If you feel called to it, I'd absolutely love it if you took some time to also share this on social media as this once again allows us to reach more people and provide as much value as possible to those that really need to hear it. And as always, guys, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Instagram, The Pocket Coach. Or you can follow myself, Coach Keza, K-E-Z-Z-A, on Instagram as well. Uh, my website is www.healingwithkez.com and I have a little cool announcement. I will be releasing a community group that you podcasters have complete free access to for the first month of the subscription so essentially this community group if you want more information you can go to the website link in the show notes where you'll be able to find uh, more information around what the community is about so you guys just need to use the code provided in the show notes which is stay blessed all in capitals and that will give you one free month to experience the community. All right, guys. Much love. Stay blessed. <laughs> yeah, I've said that a few times now. And have a beautiful day or evening. <laughs>